Hey, welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. Larissa is still working on, we've been taping a lot of these uh, next season of the Magnus Podcast. Really exciting stuff coming. And in the meantime, we want to bless you with a little bit more from Father Carol. This is the Amaryllis. The, the Amaryllis is a being that has its own independence. Uh, it, you see, it's outside the table. It's outside of us. Uh, that is, it's other than us. Uh, in that way, it uh, starts to manifest its individuality relative to us and to the chairs we're sitting in and to the tables and every other corporeal being in the room. One of the ways that it distinguishes itself from everything in the room is um, its shape and color. Um, you see, the more we look at the one individual, the more we can see how it individuates itself. It's not something that's done to it, but it's something that this amaryllis is doing to itself. You see, isn't it individuating itself by growing this leaf? Isn't it individuating itself? You'll see better here. You see another blossom. It's forming itself into another blossom. And I don't know if you can see from where you are on this side. It's going to have a fourth blossom. So, and uh, in great contrast to, let's say, the table, it is growing itself, increasing its magnitude, its size, and its shape, but uh, the table uh, is not doing anything like that to itself. It, uh, we can say that under the influence of the uh, lights in the room, that uh, the, the waves of light hitting the table are doing something to the table. And the table is reacting to the light in the same way that the, the waves of air as I speak are striking not only your ears, but the table itself and, and the amaryllis. And it's having some sort of effect. Let's come back to what I think is a very great modern example of the interaction of beings, the sort of mutuality of beings. One might even say the union of all beings. Now the example is, and this goes back now maybe 50 years, uh, there had been a, an enormous astronomical discovery of what was called a quasar, a quasi, quasi-star, a quasar. And the one I, the, I think the first one that I read about was quasar 325. <laughs> but now we have to bear in mind that the actual star 
had disappeared. It had gone out of being just through its entropy. But the light it had been emitting from something like um, 7.5 billion light years away, mm -hmm. the light uh, the light waves were, were particles, was still arriving here on Earth. Well, that was very impressive, but what really impressed me was that when the physicists, uh, astrophysicists analyzed the light from the quasar 325, uh, they, you know, they put it in a spectroscope and they, they can see what the chemical structure of the light might be. They discovered that there were carbon particles in the, from the quasar that were identical to the carbon particle in every one of our cells. Oh my gosh. Now you see in the vast distance of the cosmos, 7.5 billion light years, there was this unity of um, carbon particles in the non-living star, but uh, living in our cells. So the unity, uh, even the unity between um, the, shall we say, no, well, the non-living carbon particle and our living carbon particle. You see, isn't that a very strong pointer uh, to a greatly debated question? Well, or even a great question that is ignored in modern times, whether we have a soul or a body and what are the interrelations of them. But if the inert, non-living car carbon particle can be alive and active in our uh, human cells, then isn't that sort of a pointer towards some kind of union between life and non-life body? Uh, <coughs> And uh, you see, as we had said before with the uh, amaryllis, it's going through all kinds of activities within itself that are living activities of nourishing itself from the bulb, growing leaves and stalk, and then the flowers. So it's growing itself into a, a, a more and more developed self. <clears throat> Unlike the table or the inert, non-living carbon particle. <clears throat> so that the, there, 
there is matter here in the amaryllis plant that is alive and that that aspect of its being whereby it lives and shapes its matter into its living shape that is what we call soul theologians and philosophers if they're worth anything uh, will recognize that with plants and animals and humans maybe even cells that uh, there is a principle of life of inner movement whereby the living being becomes more itself that's what we call soul um, any repetition or now you see what we're doing here when we meet is we're putting out interior acts of understanding within ourselves and let's say you hadn't understood the relation between the quasar and its carbon particles and our carbon particles. The study that I had looked at uh, it didn't go into this but I, I took it as presumed that the carbon particle in us didn't come from the quasar but came from just all the carbon particles around us but they would still be identically the same so the unity of the universe is manifested the oneness of the universe now I want to make a connection between the amaryllis and this so mm, these are words to begin with but we're going to see that the derivation of these words will be from the amaryllis being itself not they're not developed and then applied to the amaryllis plant but we want to see them as a theologian and a philosopher should see them we want to see these words which we emit, which we emanate within ourselves as living acts uh, uh, are very analogous to the living acts whereby this being perfects itself. Mm. Now, uh, <coughs> excuse me, I don't know if you'd seen uh, when maybe you were coming from uh, lunch the marvelous bouquet of roses uh, uh, at the front desk. Oh, when you go and make a point of looking at them. But you see, there were many roses. But within the many roses, many, some, there were each individual one. 
So the, you see, the, we have formed these sounds into words so that we can communicate with ourselves and each other, but we're taking something of the aspects of the beings themselves. Well, let's say there's two flowers, and they're within the wholeness, the unity of the amaryllis. They are two different flowers. In that sense, this one is not this one. So we're going between some flowers and one flower. So our language begins uh, from the being and the presence of the amaryllis in its being as it impresses itself into our understanding brings about further acts within us of forming uh, an under act of under understanding. What is the act of understanding? Well, that this one flower is not this one flower. But you see, that has emanated, has grown within our mind. We talk about these understandings as being concepts. That is, the presence of the amaryllis being to our understanding has conceived the concepts within our understanding. So you see the great union. So the conceiving of the understanding, the conceiving of the concept, you see how the word conceive and concept are uh, linked together. So when we understand something, there is a living act of understanding that is that remains within our being. Um, then uh, there's a further stage that in, in be, and because of that act of understanding, I can use my air from my lungs through my throat and mouth and tongue and make certain sounds that bear, carry my understanding through the air, into your ears, into your mind. Mm. Now you see, have you, do you know or have you ever seen or are you interested in redwood trees? Mm. <laughs> Peculiarity about a redwood, about redwood trees is they always grow together and they grow closely together. Why? Because the root system is so shallow. And so when they grow close to each other, their roots can intertwine and strengthen their stability in the air and the, the wind. Um, That's why we don't have to be afraid of these redwoods. Well, those trees out in front on the sidewalk, 
last year, they were dropping branches as big as my arm uh, onto the sidewalk. Uh, so I've warned John Cruz about it, and but it cost about two thousand dollars to take each one down, and apparently, ECA is responsible for them, not the city. The board of supervisors voted a long time ago that uh, the property owners with the sidewalk are responsible for it. These politicians. Yeah. Well, in any case. Um, now, you see, the Amaryllis has been doing many living acts within itself, uh, nourishing, growing, flowering itself. In the same way that when I take a sip of water, am I not very much like the, uh, mm -hmm. the plant nourishing itself? That's what we call analogy. <clears throat> that with the one way of being, there is still a difference within that one way of being. <clears throat> The, um, Sounds like you just described the difference between male and female. Well, they're, they're analogous too. Yeah. You know, let's say part of the individuality of our being um, is um, that I have these bones, which are not your bones. We won't make any bones about it. <laughs> and the thing is that, uh, for instance, uh, since you brought up the aspect of male and female, uh, God made a man in, the, in his image, male and female, he made them. Our hip, our pelvic bones are quite, quite different. Um, I was fascinated to read this ages ago that if you were to take um, a forensic biologist that is a biologist who for legal purposes of court evidence will examine various aspects of let's say a human body and whose expert opinion is accepted by the courts. Uh, if a forensic biologist is given a pile of human um, teeth, he can separate them into male and female teeth. There may be some difficulty with a few, but on, in the large, the, there's a male-female difference in our teeth. Um, the, um, it's also evident that um, there, there is the difference between the male and female brain. Uh, I think so. Not in terms of um, 
intelligence or anything like or willpower. <laughs> uh, but in terms of the relation of the the brain used by the mind for its purposes. Um, there is still a difference because the male body is for this purpose and the female body is for its purpose. And there is a different shaping of the bones and of the brain. Um, program about two nights ago. It was called Secrets of the Dead. And that's where they had compared um, what they found a mummy. Um, where in the world was it? I can't remember where it was, but they they brought out the bones and they can compare the male versus the female. And they can use the, um, the fibula, your thigh bone, compare them and a male to be longer and stronger than the yeah. female yeah. and then when you talk about the pelvic the woman's pelvic is much wider, wider. because you're talking childbirth they got to yeah. carry a baby so yeah. they can compare pelvics and say this is male this isn't yeah quite interesting you see there are so many uh, aspects of society that are trying to wipe out these differences yeah. and uh, that uh, is not only rather destructive to our common way of being um, you see my bones are my bones your bones are your bones and you move your bones grow your bones and move your bones the way that your type of uh, female body needs, wants, just as the male body grows itself for the male purpose. And you see the element of finality that is there. That is, there is something to be accomplished. Now we find that uh, difference in so many plants, female and male. And uh, Aquinas has a rather very fruitful way of uh, speaking to some of this. He says that the human soul endowed with understanding and willing grows the kind of body that it needs for its purposes of knowing and willing. Let me repeat that. Our human soul grows the type of body it needs for the soul's purposes of knowing and willing, knowing and loving. So you see, uh, in um, at one time I was trying to do a lot of study in biology, and uh, I had seen 
some documentaries. And one of the documentaries was following uh, a fertilized uh, human cell. You know, in biology they call it a zygote. <laughs> but uh, I think we should keep our language very, very concrete. Um, the first thing that uh, this unicellular human being does is, um, and I think I'll repeat all of this because uh, I did it with uh, an earlier group. You see, there was a, a biologist in France, his name was Jean Lajeune. John the Young. <laughs> and he was a major biologist. He was uh, um, enormously influential. <laughs> he discovered that um, if this is the female egg and this is the sperm, and they were able to film this. You could see the sperm coming towards the female egg. Not that the female egg was moving towards the sperm, but that the sperm was coming to the female. And the, the sperm looked a bit like a tadpole, sort of a bulge with a a flagella, we call it a tail, but it enabled it to move. You see, it had a certain finality in its way of being that it needed to get to the female egg. Now this is the extraordinary discovery of Lajan and his assistants. Um, when the sperm penetrated the membrane of the female egg, there was an immediate electrochemical transformation that closed off what was had been the unfertilized female egg and the uh, inactive uh, for, not uh, actively fertilizing sperm, sealed it off so that there was now a new form of being. No longer just female egg, no longer just sperm, but this union, uh, uni, unicellular living being. Here we are today. And here we are today, yeah. I think I was the result of a, maybe a New Year's party. Yeah. Well, think back and look at the season. And so many of us are born uh, you know, late July, August, early September. Early September. 
August. Uh, October. October. Uh, the, uh, but the, the um, they went on to um, discover some, something else. Uh, that everything that uh, this new being, uh, shall I say, is, it was so individual that they had film of other male sperm trying to get in and not being able to penetrate because it had sealed itself off into its own oneness, its individuality. And then they were able to see as the, as this unicellular being, then they could film, film its growth and then begin to see how it was starting to shape itself with little indentations, and then it would split into two cells. And then they made this further discovery. All biology up until that time had taught that it went from one to two to four uh, to eight, 16 multiples of cells, all within the, the one being. But Lejeune and his group discovered that it went from one to two to three, and then four, and then eight, and onward. But I never saw any explanation of why it went from two to three. Uh, And then further, Everything that that being was going to develop itself into its own fullness of being was present in that first instant when it sealed itself off electrochemically. Uh, Certainly there would be nutrition coming once the egg had implanted itself in the mother's uh, wall of the uterus, it was being nourished. But you see, it's taking nourishment from outside and taking the nourishment, uh, let's say liquid, minerals, whatever, uh, and transforming them into itself for its own purposes of nourishing itself and growing and whatnot. I take a drink of water, it goes down into my stomach, it's absorbed, it goes into the bloodstream, it's pumped by the heart all around the body. But you see, I take the non-living water and I transform it into my life. Now, any repetition of any of that? Just a question. On, the, on those studies, did they ever check if the person or the cell turned out to be a female or a male? 
Oh, well, I think rather early on. Because I was wondering well, where the transgender started changing souls. That, that is not organic. That is a psychological deception. Yeah. Do you remember, going back 30 or 40 years, the um, that huge... Um, deception of um, going back to um, childhood memories of sexual abuse and how many cases there were do you am I referring am I referring to it uh, in a familiar way uh, so many young girls were able were told that uh, they could go back and find uh, uh, memories of having been sexual, mm -hmm. sexually abused and that. And it turned out to be just... Uh, suggestion. Uh, suggestion. It was really suggestion from adults. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, there was a term for it I can't recall. But uh, I think the transgendering is going on now. Um, do you know that John Hopkins University that pioneered the first transitions gave up doing them 20, about 15 years ago because uh, they were so dangerous and uh, not helpful. A good number of the transgendered uh, people end up, uh, a good number of them end up as suicides. Um, when the sperm enters the egg, it's either a sperm with an X chromosome or it's a sperm with a Y chromosome. Uh, I don't know. So as soon as the zygote is born, it's a male yeah. or female. Yeah, that would uh, answer Connie's question. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> the uh, you see when we say in the creed that. Uh, Jesus was uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We're di discerning two different stages, mm -hmm. but uh, Mary would have uh, offered her, when she said yes, she was offering her, her egg uh, to the creative action of the Holy Spirit who would create uh, the, uh, the sperm that was going to be either male or female, in Christ's case, male. Um, I don't know if you've heard uh, this type of language. They weren't uh, thinking of Christ the Holy Spirit and the Blessed Mother, but um, oh, I just happened to be born male or female. Mm. That uh, it's an accident. Uh, I've heard that uh, type of language rather often about uh, religious affiliation. Oh, my parents happen to be Catholic, but. Uh, I'm spiritual, uh, uh, I, I happen to be. You see, everything is sort of 
an accident. But, uh, I knew some religious who said there are no accidents. There are no accidents. Right. Uh, to the extent that we went through Aquinas's five ways, there cannot be any accidents. Uh, um, back to La Gêne, there was a, a couple in Tennessee and um, they were having problems conceiving and uh, they went to doctors and uh, they uh, harvested, as they say, her eggs and uh, they thought, the couple thought they would help, it would help their marriage difficulties if they were to have a child. Well, in between the time that the eggs were taken from the wife and stored, they divorced. The, um, after a while, I forget how long, the, the woman decided that she would have the, uh, oh, and they had his sperm. So they were, go they were going to do what is called in vitro fertilization. Um, she decided to go ahead and have the eggs um, fertilized and implanted. And he took her to court uh, because he didn't want that. He didn't want the, I guess, the responsibility of a child in all of those circumstances and uh, took her to court that she needed his permission to do that because they were property. And as property, they belonged to him just as much as they belonged mm -hmm. to her. Mm -hmm. So the court case was going on. So she had her uh, geneticists to give their expert witness, and somehow, it didn't say in anything I read, he got La Jeune from France to come as an expert witness. Now, in Tennessee, how, how he had learned about La Jeune and the discoveries that I described to him. So, they give testimony, and Lejeune gave testimony, as I gave it to you. And um, so then the, uh, her lawyers were going to question Lejeune. And, and this was in the presence of the American geneticist for the woman. And uh, the judge said no to the lawyer um, and said, I will do the questioning. So he led Lejeune stage by stage through his expert testimony. And at each point, he would stop and turn to the American geneticist and say, 
did you know that? And they had to say, no. They were about three years or more behind the research that was being done in France by Lejeune and confirmed in Britain by another team of mm. biologists. No, they, this point, no, this point, no, this point, no. And so uh, when it uh, got to the part of Lejeune's testimony that this was a complete being possessed of everything that it needed for its fullest development uh, as a mature adult, he said, um, thank you, and he went on to say, I'm prepared to give my judgment right now. This is not a case of property. This is a case of child care. And I award the children to the person best able to take care of them, meaning the wife. Now, that is established law. There have been a number of consequences to that law. Um, you see, some aspects of that case got up into the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court at one time um, gave a judgment that went against the science and, um, sorry, I've gone blank, went against the, this newly discovered uh, scientific understanding. Um, ah, they gave their judgment, but then they issued a connected four-page statement of why the Supreme Court did not take up all the evidence from the Tennessee court case in giving their judgment. Mm. And some of the reasons was that it would uh, overturn Roe Wade, and overturning Roe Wade would bring the Supreme Court into ill repute with so many people. So they couldn't do that. But you know, that was utter nonsense. The Supreme Court is always changing precedent, precedent rather. Um, a, Catholic, a judge on the Supreme Court from California by the name of Kennedy uh, was quoted in this sort of four-page justification for their judgment all non-legal, non-legal justifications for their legal judgment. You know, one thought that the laws were made on evidence. Um, he said, everybody, and I think I'm quoting word for word, everyone has the right to define human life the way they want. You see, truth comes down to a will act. There was no difference between Judge Kennedy saying that and the uh, highly suicidal 
philosophy developed by Jean-Paul Sartre. Um, for Sartre, any meaning of any sort or degree of truth and goodness depends upon the act of the will, not the relation between, let's say, the amaryllis and our understanding of it and our approval of it as good in what it's doing to itself and good in what it's doing it's, to itself. It's doing good to us because look at how it's enlivening us through its beauty. Um, well, um, what time is it, please? Six minutes before two. One fifty-four. Ah, thank you. Then let me speak about this. You see, with the amaryllis, there is the genus uh, plant. Um, within the genus, there are some plants that are called amaryllis. And with, within the species, there is the individual, this amaryllis. And you see the correspondence. Oh, let's say with us, all of us are animals. Within the genus, we belong to the species human and not dog or cat or mosquito or elephant. Or monkey. And within the species, we are each an individual or an idiotes. <laughs> this is the Greek word for individual. But you see, we get our English word idiot out of it. We've got to set that aside. What idiotes in the Greek means, the ultimate substantially existing being within the species. Um, some Greek philosophers uh, had a different terminology. And some of, since uh, so much of our terminology comes from the Greek thinkers, uh, it's worthwhile knowing about it. Some would call the individual, not the idiotes, but the, the atom, A-T-O-M. But you see, what Adam meant for these Greek thinkers was that as you went through the genus and the species, you got to this individual one. So Adam, in the original Greek, is always referring to what idiotes is referring to. This individual one that is specific to itself as amaryllis and is generically itself as plant. So you see the this individual 
is itself its species, and is it is the individual within its species, within its genus as plant. And we could have a higher level of understanding that plants belong within all living uh, beings. <clears throat> Any repetition of this. So when we say all or some or one, where the theologians and philosophers use this type of language, but um, uh, right down to Hegel, who died in 1831, uh, he was using this as the sort of the basic structure of what he called uh, metaphysics, which would be the most important part of his uh, intellectual work. It's only with people like Sartre that all of this is wiped out. All of it is wiped out. And uh, the, uh, I don't know if I've told you this, I was living in Paris one winter and uh, I would get up early Sunday morning and go to Mass at uh, Saint-Germain-des-Prés on the left bank, the, the Latin Quarter. <laughs> and um, I came out of Mass and the streets are just deserted. Um, and I was heading, I guess I was heading south uh, to my hotel and I was alone and I saw a couple come out of a building and start walking across the street to a deux chevaux, you know, those little, little cars. And uh, it caught my attention because they were the only living, moving beings around. And uh, they got about halfway across the street. Uh, I saw them and uh, she was groomed. Uh, her makeup, mm. her clothing, a fur sort of jacket. And the man was sort of helping her across the street very carefully. And uh, so I stopped and uh, I wasn't going to be able to stare at them. So I turned and I was looking in a store window, but I was really watching them <laughs> because I had recognized it was Simone de Beauvoir and her companion, Jean-Paul Sartre. And they'd just come out of the apartment building where she lived. He lived just on the other side of the church, Saint-Germain-des-Prés, with his mother. And he had another apartment where he used to do all his work. And there, there was also just across from the facade of uh, Saint-Germain-des-Prés, um, a restaurant called Les Deux Magots, a ch Chinese good luck statue. And he, he practically lived in there and did most of his writing. And so, uh, most of his writing isn't worth reading, but there are some things that are just simply superb. 
But uh, they looked like a couple that had had a very, very serious quarrel. They weren't very happy with each other. And he was sort of trying to take care of her and maybe make up and that. I thought it was so sad. And it was a Sunday morning and it was cloudy, gray. Depressing. (laughs) But the... uh, when you begin changing the language, as is going on all the time now, mm. everything is being redefined. Not so much redefined, is being taken out of the area of common understanding. And other people are imposing their language for the, because their language comes from their way of thinking. And uh, the uh, I you know I grew up in Canada, and uh, all the time I've been living here in the States, every time I come across uh, its ITS with the apostrophe in that. I get confused, and I have to look it up in Webster. It and it, it's without a apostrophe, yeah. and it with it, and um, in fact, I just it just happened to me about three four days ago. I looked it up. Uh, I think it was in Webster, and in Canada we did not make the difference between. Uh, it ITS, we didn't make the difference, uh, and now I can't remember which is which, it, whether it's with the. It would be it is. Yes, and it that's what we that's what we understood too. Oh, I guess we followed it by. <laughs> but it was the use of the apostrophe, and Americans insist on that. But when uh, I looked in the. A dictionary, it said uh, that the um, IT hyphen, or rather apostrophe, S for it's, it is, mm-hmm. was uh, obsolete, archaic. Oh, yeah. But that was my usage that I learned in my Canadian school. So another example was when I came to the States and I would talk about someone being unkept, I'd be corrected right away. No, no, they're unkempt. We didn't know the word unkempt in my area. Another word is using may and can. So many people don't use it properly. Yes. They always say, I can, yeah. I can, or you can. Or, uh, there is a big difference. Yeah. Or, pardon me and excuse me. Now, we made a, a true differentiation between those. Yeah. And I didn't know that until I went to a public lecture at the University in Cincinnati, Xavier, where I was teaching. And the, lect- the lecturer said, 
Now I'm going to tell a little joke and the only one person's going to laugh at it. And you know, it was a crowded hall. And so he told the story and one person laughed, me. It was because I was the only one who understood the joke. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the joke was, <laughs> an Oxford tutor is uh, squiring a young woman around, showing her the sights of Oxford with her mother. And they've gone up onto the roof of one of the colleges so they can look across the, all of the top of Oxford and its beauty. And he happens to bump into the young woman and he says, excuse me, and threw himself off the roof. <laughs> well, I was the only one who laughed. And the lecturer knew I was from Canada when we were teaching together. But you see, excuse me is you're going to leave the place. Pardon me is you're asking for forgiveness of an offense. That was very strong. But in Cincinnati, it didn't exist. Uh, Excuse me. Yes, I think we're better all gone. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2023, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.